Hello, my name is Dr. Christopher Janeri, and this is Great Big History Podcast. In this episode, we do Arabic Islam, Part 3, War, Empire, and Family Fallouts. So this is our politics episode, and so when we start, we start with, again, Muhammad, unifying the Arabs. Through a concept that is known as jihad. Now, the traditional translation of jihad is a holy war, but the word itself means struggle, and so it brings about the question of struggle against what? If it's holy war, it means the infidel, the non-believer. Um, there is a more modern interpretation that jihad is the struggle against yourself, against sin, against against doing the wrong thing. What seems to me fairly clear is the idea of jihad was nashio, is the idea that the world should be Muslim. This comes out of the Christian tradition, it comes out of the Roman tradition. The Romans thought the world should be Roman. The Christians will pick that up and say the world should be Christian. And that's still today. Still today, I get knocks on the door. Hi, would you like to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and be a Christian? And I say, I'm Catholic. And they say, would you like to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and be a Christian? Okay, thanks a lot. Um, that's a whole different thing. We're going to talk about that in History 102. But the idea is the world should be Muslim. That was the idea of jihad at the time. If you could do it peacefully, great. If you have to do it through war, so be it. Muhammad is not afraid of fighting. He spends a lot of time fighting the pagan polytheistic Arabs, the other Arabs. But what he is able to do is make Islam the glue that holds the different tribes together. The uh, Arabic tribes are held together by him personally and through Islam. So there's this thing that is bigger than the tribe that they are going to be loyal to, this idea of Islam. When they used to kill each other, now they're going to be unified and go off and beat up other people. We'll see this when we do the Mongols. The Genghis Khan kind of does the same thing. He beats up a whole lot of tribes, unifies them, and says, let's go beat up China and Central Asia. And the people say, great, let's go. They spent most of their lives fighting each other. Now they're fighting other people. Well, Muhammad dies in 632, and all of his other children, all of his elder children, are dead, except for Fatima. Fatima, his youngest daughter, is still alive. That creates a problem of succession. Now, you have to remember, the Arabs are a nomadic horse people. They're a nomadic tribe. So kinship, remember we talked about this in our very first class, kinship, charisma, and leadership all matter. And so who should come after Muhammad? Well, there's a problem because it's not really clear. And the answer that the ummah, that the, the group will pick, that Muslims will pick, will decide whether Islam will be a monarchy, a kingship, or an elected leadership. Will it be a kingship? Will it be a monarchy? 
Well, it could because there's Fatima and she is married to Ali and they have two sons, Hassan and Hussein. Now, Fatima is the only remaining daughter, child of Muhammad. Ali is not a nobody. Ali is um, the kind of favorite son-in-law. He's not the same generation as Muhammad. He's younger, but he's a favorite. He's the first male to convert to Islam. He's everywhere. He's there with the prophet. He is, a, he is kind of as much of a companion as you can get. He's the father of the grandchildren. He lacks charisma. He's there. He lacks a killer instinct. He doesn't, we'll see, he doesn't necessarily know when to seize the moment. Um, but if you're going to go through the bloodline of Muhammad, Ali should be the next leader. Through his marriage to Fatima, even if it's just a caretaker to get to Hassan and Hussein. He sees himself as the rightful heir. Through all of the rules of Arab nomadic horse culture. But there is another group who don't want a bloodline because they'll be pushed out. They'll get nothing. They're related to Muhammad by marriage. And so they want an elected leader via consensus of the elites. They know Ali is not well liked in the, in the groups, among the elites. And this is a group that includes three guys. Abu Bakr, father-in-law to Muhammad, uh, through Aisha. Omar, also father-in-law to Muhammad, though Omar's a younger man. And he's through Hafsa, his daughter Hafsa, who he had tried to marry to Uthman, the third guy. Uthman is a son-in-law of Muhammad twice over. He had married one of Muhammad's daughters who died. He married her sister who also died before the prophet. So you can see these guys are close to Muhammad and they don't really like the idea of being frozen out of power by Ali. That's what they fear. And so there's this fight. And the answer is it's a mess, which both expands and breaks up Islam. Abu Bakr is elected with Omar's support. Ali isn't there. They chose the leader without Ali there. So Ali is, of course, pissed. Fatima dies. And in the Shia tradition, she is murdered by Omar, who's also Umar with a U. There's two different spellings. She's murdered by Umar. Accidentally, it's more of a manslaughter than a murder. Uh, Omar is hot-headed. 
he's going to be the great military leader, actually, of the next, of the post-Muhammad era. And he goes, and the tradition is he breaks down the door trying to get to Ali. He wants Ali. He needs Ali to swear allegiance to Abu Bakr. He has to get Ali to accept the election because Ali has enough supporters by being married to Fatima and being the father of the grandchildren. He has enough, he has his own tribe too, but he has enough supporters. He could start a civil war. And so what Omar needs is to get Abu Bakr, who's an old dude and nobody thinks he's a caretaker. He'll be in charge for a little while. He turns out to only be in charge two years. He's a contemporary. He's a friend of Muhammad's. So Omar needs Ali to be okay with the election because that's the only way Omar can get power later. He, need, he knows if Abu Bakr can be elected, he could be elected. But if you're going to go through Ali, you're all out. Because it's going to go from Ali to Hassan and then to Hassan's children or to Hussein and Hussein's children. So you're, you would be frozen out. So he goes, he goes to the house, he breaks down the door. Fatima is trying to keep him out. And either he breaks down the door and pushes Fatima down or he throws Fatima down himself. She is pregnant with a third grandchild. She miscarries. And in the amount of blood that she loses, she dies herself. That's the Shia tradition. And we're going to talk about the Sunni versus Shia traditions. In the Sunni tradition, the, the more traditional, the more widespread one, she just dies. As far as I understand it, she, she has a complicated birth and she just dies. Omar has nothing to do with it. But without Fatima, Ali gets frozen out. He gets frozen out of power. And what Abu Bakr does is spend the next two years basically conquering the rest of the Arabs and unifies them. He dies of natural causes. Omar is elected. Again, Ali is frozen out. So Ali is again out there pissed. His enemy, his nemesis has been elected caliph. His, ne his, his enemy has been elected uh, leader of the Ummah. So that's the caliph, C-A-L-I-P-H, caliph. And Omar is like the bull. He sets the armies loose. He sets the Arabs loose throughout the Middle East. They're going to conquer Syria, Persia, Egypt, Jerusalem. He's going to start putting down an administration, but not a dynasty. And this is very interesting. He doesn't freeze out Ali and try to make himself king. He gives, he spreads it around, knowing, and this is a smart thing about Omar, that if he had done what he accused Ali of wanting to do, that it would have empowered Ali's, Ali's allies. Because Ali has the better, remember, he's got the grandchildren, he's got the grandsons, he's got the better claim than Omar does. And so Omar's smart enough not to fall into the trap. So he uses all the different tribes. He uses all the different peoples. He's willing to hire uh, Christians, Jews, and Zoroastrians. And if they'll convert, sure, no problem. Even better. 
but he's willing to use locals as well as administrators. He gets assassinated. Omar gets assassinated by a Persian slave. We're going to see assassinations. Well, assassination is an Arabic word. So what happens now? So Omar dies unexpectedly. And so they say, well, we had an election for Abu Bakr. We, ha we had an election for Omar. We'll have another election. And this time, Ali thinks he'll win. He's got the best claim. And so this is another moment, just like after Muhammad dies, where he doesn't seize the moment. He doesn't execute his enemies. He doesn't set his allies off to arrest or to wage a civil war. He doesn't seize power. He waits. And they elect Uthman. There's a there's a, a whole process. There's an election. It's not a big election. There's only a handful of people. And they select Uthman. Partly because Ali says, no, I don't really want it. And people went, okay, if you don't want it. And he's like, no, 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 really, I want it. But I, I'm trying to say I don't want it because of how much I want it. And they're like, yeah, no, you said you don't want it. We're going to pick somebody else. And this is not the only time this happens in history. This actually happened at the end, at the death of Alexander. Alexander dies, and no one knows what to do with Alexander's empire. They want to keep it together, but he has no heirs, but he has a sister. He has a wife who has an unborn child. They don't know if that's going to be a boy or a girl. And even then, it would be an infant that can't rule. So there's a wife, there's a sister. And the idea is, the sister should marry one of the generals. She'll marry one of the generals. Boom, done. He'll become the caretaker. If the if a boy is born to Roxanne, that boy gets to be the king in 20 years. We're, we're all fine. And hey, if the sister and the general and the, you know, best one of the general friends of Alexander have kids and uh, Roxanne's kid gets murdered or just simply disappears out of history, that's okay too. And they select one of the generals and they go, you, you were friends with Alexander. You, you were head, I think it's the infantry. But it was like, you, just marry the sister. And he goes, no, no, I can't. I can't do such a thing. And they went, all right, well, who else wants to be in charge? And he's like, wait, 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 wait. Like, no, you lost your moment. And the empire breaks up because then three people realize that the moment has changed and they're like, well, now nobody's king. So I want to be king. And Ptolemy gets on his boat, uh, on his horse and runs the Egypt to portray, proclaim himself Pharaoh. This is what happens to Ali. Ali misses his shot. He doesn't take it. He is not Hamilton. In the Hamilton musical, he listened to my shot. He talks about, I'm not going to waste my shot. Ali misses twice. Uthman gets elected. Now, Uthman is rich. Rich. Super rich. That helped him get elected. He will continue the conquests. He will even build navies. Now, remember, the Arabs are a desert people. And now they got navies in the Mediterranean. They don't know how to build boats. 
There's no wood. And now they have navies. And those navies are getting to be almost as good as the Byzantine, Byzantine navies, which dominate the Mediterranean. The Byzantine navies have to worry about the Arab navies. Think about how close they have, they have closed that gap in, in almost no time. In 30 years from Muhammad. But Uthman does two things wrong. One, he uses his Umayyad family, and we're going to remember that name, underline it. He's going to use his Umayyad family members to create a dynasty. And this is seen as nepotism. Remember, Omar didn't do this. This is seen as he gives the best jobs to his cousins, brothers-in-law, to family relations. And that's seen as freezing out other people. The governors are all going to be Umayyads. He's creating a, a dynasty in the Roman imperial idea. He's you choosing loyalty over ability. He's choosing his family. So in a way, he's doing what people said Ali wanted to do. He's actually doing it. Now, he's not quite making himself king, but he's starting down that road. He's kind of like Caesar in Gaul at the, the start, being like, well, you know, I'll just I'll wear it off purple. He's like starting that road. He's also wealthy, stupid wealthy. He was involved in the caravan trades across Arabia, between Egypt and India, and he had a reputation for being corrupt. Well, as the old saying goes, behind every great fortune is a greater crime. And that's kind of how the Arabs thought, because the Arabs are all poor. Why is this guy rich? So he's kind of corrupt. He, he likes a good bribe. And he loved good living, which meant to nomadic horse people, he's kind of soft. He wasn't a great warrior. He's not at the great battles the way Omar is, the way Ali is. He's a bureaucrat. He's a spreadsheet guy. He's good at that. In fact, he might be, if he wasn't too corrupt, the kind of Darius the Great, the guy who kind of, all right, we've expanded. We've conquered a lot of North Africa. We've conquered Egypt. We've conquered the Middle East. We've conquered Persia. Now we got to put down like roads. We got to put down stuff. We got to, we've got to really kind of run, start running this thing. But because of who the Arabs are, it kind of plays against him. This is a thing Cyrus had. Cyrus, for the Persians, had the same problem. Cyrus conquers all this stuff, and his, a lot of his nobility come to him and go, Cyrus, can we live in cities now? Can we take baths like every day? Like, Babylon's awesome. Can we be like them? And he has this famous phrase that is like, soft living makes soft men. Remember, we conquered all these people. Why did we conquer them? Because we're tougher than they are. So there's in nomadic horse peoples this idea that it's the very hardness of life that brings success. It makes you better than all those urban city folk. Uthman liked the urban city stuff. He liked the silks. He liked the baths. He liked the mosaics. He liked that stuff. And so there's a large group of people who are like, he's soft. He's not really one of us. And that plays 
these two things, the, the nepotism and his kind of soft living play against him and lead to a revolt. An army in Egypt revolted, marched to Mecca, lay siege to the city, break in, kill Uthman. Problem. They need legitimacy for their revolt. They can't, they can't take over. No general can just say, I'm in charge now. No one would obey that, that guy. So they need someone who is close to Muhammad, who wants to be caliph, which is not an easy job right now because you, you're at war with the Byzantines in the northwest. You're at war with the Persians in the northeast. You've got um, Berbers and Coptics in North Africa to fight. You've got the Arabs you have to keep all together, which is not an easy thing to do. There's all these tribes that they would like nothing better than to fight each other. And then there's the Umayyads who are going to lose now that Uthman is dead and going to be replaced. So you need someone who wants to be caliph and isn't Umayyad. And is there such a person? Yes. That person is Ali. Ali has been sitting there waiting to be asked to be caliph. And now he is. And so the question is, can Ali finally create the kingship? Can he have himself in charge long enough that he can establish the legitimacy of the bloodline of Muhammad through him and then his sons, through Fatima? Can he do it? And what about the Umayyads? How do they feel about losing power? They're going to lose their jobs. They're going to lose their prestige position. Now, there's something about the Umayyads you, you have to know. They're not well-liked. They're latecomers to Islam. Of the families, of the different, of the major families of, of the Arabs who convert over, they're one of the last. They marry well. They marry into Uthman's, fa Uthman's family. I think they marry into Omar's family. Um, at least some of them do. They marry well. But there's a little bit of like bandwagon jumper. They showed up after the hard fighting. They showed up late. And so they're not particularly well liked. They're not even in Mecca. They established themselves up in Damascus. As soon as Damascus fell, they kind of made that their capital. So they, they even left the homeland. They're gone. They took off. They're like, forget about you suckers. We're going north. Where they could establish like their own little kingdom in, in Byzantine Syria. So there's this, this feeling that the Umayyads are like icky as a family. But they're rich, they're powerful. They had Uthman. They have allies. They know how to spend their money well. And so Ali's going to have to deal with them. Maybe. Unless they accept Ali as the new caliph. What do the Umayyads do? Revolution. They will plot out, hire assassins, and they will fight with Ali. Now, Ali is assassinated by an extremist. He's actually assassinated. This is another way where kind of Ali misses his shot. Ali is willing to negotiate with the Umayyads. 
which is not a dumb thing to do. The Mayans have this huge power structure that they've built over the last decade or so. And Ali's not sure of his own power structure. So he's willing to negotiate. Well, the idea was he's the caliph. He's the rightfully guided. He's the descendant from Muhammad. He's the chosen one of God. And he's being a wimp about it. And so a more conservative, quote-unquote, ally of his murders him. We, we see this from time to time. The assassination of Gandhi is by an Indian Hindu conservative. The assassination of the Israeli prime minister in the 90s was by a um, Jewish conservative extremist because they didn't want to change. They didn't want to negotiate. So Ali gets assassinated. So he gets taken off the map. So the Umayyads now have a free hand. And there's the sons, Hassan and Hussein, who are adults at this point, young men, but adults. And Hassan gets assassinated by uh, his Umayyad-aligned wife. Or at least that's the story. She's either hired or she's in some way aligned with the Umayyads, and she poisons him. That leaves Hassan, who is himself then killed in a heroic battle um, versus huge odds. One, there's different stories. Uh, one of the most popular is he has 70 to 100 men. His caravan is attacked by about 5,000 uh, Umayyad troops, and uh, they fight to the last man. Uh, Hassan is beheaded in the in the battle after kind of like a last stand, you know, on the hill. He he's killing, he's killing Umayyads, and then you know he gets hit with an arrow. He gets clubbed in the head, and um, his allies don't come to don't come to save him, don't come to help him, and he is killed. This ends Muhammad's bloodline. There are people related, and we'll see that in the Shia tradition of the Twelve Amans, but the direct line through Muhammad of Muhammad, child, grandchild, is, is done. And so this allows a new family to rule. Someone else can move in and create a kingdom, create a king, kingship. A monarchy. And that's what the Umayyads are going to do. Having wiped out Ali as the en enemy, they will move the capital to Damascus from Mecca. Remember, Mecca is the holiest city. It's Muhammad's city. It's the city of the Arabs. It's the city of the Kabbalah, the holiest relic. And they move the capital to Damascus, which makes sense politically. But in terms of culture, it just shows the Umayyads aren't really Arab anymore. They've become more cosmopolitan. So this is like, wow, this blows people's minds. It makes sense. It's nearer the front lines. But what the Umayyads have done is now crack Islam into two uneven parts. This crack was already starting when Ali first lost to Abu Bakr. But now it breaks right into the open. The Sunnis 
are going to be the group that accepts the Umayyad rule. And this is the vast majority. Today, it's like 85 or 90% of Muslims. And the idea is God supports, Allah supports the victors. The Umayyads have won. To the victor goes the spoils. Allah does not support losers. And so, boom. The Sunnis, the Sunnis accept Umayyad rule, which means they'll accept Umayyad's interpretation of the Quran, additions to the Hadith, additions to the Sharia, you know, or interpretations of the Hadith and the Sharia. The Shia, which are the party of Ali, supporters of Ali, see the direct family of Ali and Fatima as the true rulers, as the bloodline of Muhammad, as the true rulers. They are the minority. They make up 10 to 15 percent by most estimates of modern Muslims, but they are also concentrated, heavily concentrated in certain areas. The Eastern Levant, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Yemen, Western Yemen, parts of the Caucasus, Southern Iraq, uh, basically some, the old territory of Sumeria and Acadia but especially Persia. Why? Well, the Umayyads are not nice to the non-Arabs. They themselves were latecomers. The Persians are even later. And the Umayyads are not... They're pretty pro-Arab. Which is interesting given all of their changes, how not Arab they're acting. They start putting in a kingship, which, remember, everyone accused Ali of wanting to do, the Umayyads actually do it. So the Shia are concentrated in the lower Euphrates and Tigris in Persia, the Persians, which are a large population of people in the Middle East, second only to the Egyptians. Old civilization, again, probably second only to the Egyptians, well entrenched on the Iranian plateau. And this is an issue we will have today. Today, you are in the midst. You are watching the Middle East crack up under a Sunni-Shia kind of civil war, a Saudi Arabia-Sunni versus Iran-Shia war. The civil war in Syria broke up on these same lines. With Sunni groups versus Shia groups. Assad is a Shia minority leader. Who, what did he do? Pull in allies from, from Iran. Hezbollah. And Hamas. As fighters. To stay in power. And Iranians supported him. Why? Because if he lost, there would be another Sunni government that would be after them. They would lose an ally. So Sunnis are the dominant politically and culturally and will spend most of history oppressing the Shia as some form of not true Muslims. That the Shia are weird. They do weird things. They have weird ceremonies. They're just weird. And they're just a pain in the butt. They just won't agree with the way things are supposed to be, with the way everybody else does things. So in, they're like the Protestants in early Reformation Germany and Britain, right? 
Or they're like the Catholics once the Protestants have taken over in Britain after the English Civil War. Then the Catholics are seen as the minority, as weird, as the, you know, this kind of not really us kind of people. The Shia, on the other hand, have to create new traditions to survive. So you see the Shia will have their own holidays, their own celebrations, their own memorials. And one of them is the death of Hassan. Where you will see men recreate, they'll cut their, their heads to recreate the wounds of Hassan. The Shia are more conservative than the Sunnis. The Sunnis are able to change because they're the dominant group. The Shia are more conservative because they're the minority. Because they, if they change, what's to prevent them from becoming absorbed by the majority? So they have to hold to their traditions harder. They have to be fiercer protectors of the way things used to be. So they're more conservative. In time, these two faiths and their different interpretations of the Quran, the, sh the Sharia, and the Hadith will make them, bring them further, further, further apart. They agree in Allah. And then there's a lot they don't agree after, after that. And in fact, we saw this in the Iraq Civil War. ISIS got started not by attacking Americans, but by attacking Shia in southern Iraq. That was Al-Qaeda of Mesopotamia. It wanted an Iraq Civil War along sectarian lines of Sunni versus Shia. They wanted a civil war to bring in other groups to create chaos. To end democracy, that was for sure. Because the Sunnis would lose in a democracy in Iraq because they're the minority. So, so in time, these two faiths become, they had started, and in one man's lifetime, they have split apart. Islam has cracked. It took Christianity 500 years to begin to really crack apart. It's more complicated than a straight cracking. And by 1000 AD, it has broken completely into the two Catholics versus Orthodox. Islam didn't last a century. It's 30 years, 40 years, and it's broken. So what do the Umayyads do? The Umayyads have a problem. They have a legitimacy problem. They're not related to Muhammad. They've murdered the people who were related to Muhammad. So why, why should they get to be in charge? Well, their argument will be might makes right. Allah loves victories. And so they basically tell people, we will get you more victories, which will get you a lot more money. And so they conquer Afghanistan and Morocco and even Spain, Visigothic Spain in 711. They cross over, fight a big battle, and Spain, 4,000 miles away from Mecca, is conquered. Plans are being made to invade Europe. But there's a problem. And that problem is obvious and huge. And that is Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, New Rome, room for the Arabs and the Turks, R-U-M. 
Constantinople is clearly the greatest city in the whole wide world. And it is built, owned, and run by Christians, not Muslims. And the question is, why? Why? Why would Allah allow the Christians to have Constantinople? And the answer they come up with is, because building a city is hard. And the Arabs really don't know how to do so. Much less build a city this great. And so the idea is, for the Christians to do the hard work of building it so that the Muslims can take it over. They'll take it over. They'll take over the rest of Europe. Boom. Done. So what does that mean? It means we have to invade and conquer Constantinople to make it a Muslim city. Just like we've done with Jerusalem. Just like we've done with Antioch. Just like we've done with the cities of Persia. Just like we've done with Alexandria. So, in 717, the Umayyads lay siege, a massive siege, to Constantinople. This is going to prove Allah is on their side. This is going to prove, once and for all, Allah supports them and not Ali, not the Shia. It is a massive siege, 100,000 troops, 1,000 ships, which is probably another 100,000 troops. And what happens is a disaster. Their army is obliterated. And what is it obliterated by? Greek fire, by napalm, by magic. The Greeks drop napalm. Something the Arabs have never seen, have no idea what it is. It is a petroleum-based product, so it lights the oceans on fire. It lights water on fire. It burns down their, their navy. It is Greek fire is the last invention of Roman science, something the Arabs don't have. Remember, the Arabs are nomadic horse people of the desert. They don't have Roman science. And it obliterates the Arab army. This is a trauma. Because the, the Umayyads are like, what, what just happened? The fire of heaven just got dropped on us. How did Allah allow this to happen? This massive defeat. And the answer they come up with is, ah, 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 ah. It's okay. It's okay. Constantinople is dessert. It is the last thing we will conquer. We will have it last. Dessert is the best part of the meal. Constantinople is the greatest city in the world. It will be the last thing we take. And it will prove that the world is now going to be Muslim. Ha! And so they're going to invade Europe through Spain. And in 732, they meet an army by Char of Charles Martel, a Frankish army, outside of the city of Tours, which is way in the north of France. I mean, it's not near the Pyrenees. It's pretty deep in the France. And at Tours, Charles Martel, known as the Hammer, the Hammer, he also went into battle with a giant double-handed hammer or so some traditions have it he is the grandfather of Charlemagne and he defeats the Moors which was the European name for North African Muslims the Moors at Tours saving France saving Europe from conquest and beginning the Reconquista the Catholic reconquest of Spain from this point on 
you Christians are going to start to go on the offensive against Islam. This is a trauma. Again, the Umayyads, who make the argument that Allah supports victory, have now been defeated twice. And so it's clear to the other families, the other major power brokers, that Allah doesn't want the Umayyads to get Constantinople. Allah doesn't support the Umayyads, which means it's open season on the Umayyads. You are now allowed to revolt because you know Allah might be on your side. At the very least, Allah will not be against you. And the, the family that will succeed in this will be the Abbasids. And they will run the longest dynasty from 750 to 1258, though there's some problems with that as a continuous dynasty. They will raise a revolution, and they are a Sunni tribe who so hates the Umayyads that they will ally with Shias and non-Arabs to do so. And since the Persians, who are Shia, hate the Umayyads, they are perfectly willing to join the Abbasids. There's a battle. I think the battle is outside of Babylon. Babylon's not a real city anymore, but it's on one of those giant battlefields of Mesopotamia, and the Abbasids crush the Umayyad army. Remember, the Umayyad army's just lost on Constantinople. It's now, it's, it's, um, it's far out. Raiders have lost 4,000 miles away in Europe. This is not an army that's like high morale. And here come the Abbasids, and here come the Shia who hate the, Abba uh, the Umayyads, and they crush them. And then the Abbasids do one better. They send out what's known as Hassan's men to kill the Umayyads. Now, the Hassan become, we drop the H in English, become the Assassins. And if you've ever played Assassin's Creed 1, you know you spend a lot of time whacking Umayyads. And that's what they are sent out to do. And they're very good at it, especially killing them in, in, in prayer, which is how Ali was attacked during prayers. Now, the Abbasids will wipe out the Umayyads. One Umayyad will live and escape to Spain. And he'll pop up and be like, Hi, I'm an Umayyad. And the Spanish elite will go, great, you've come to lead us against the Europeans. Like, they didn't know the Abbasids were taking over. So they, so Spain gets carved out as this, like, not part of the caliphate empire. It's, it becomes its own Umayyad uh, Spanish Islamic state. But the rest of the empire goes to the Abbasids. There's still the problem of Constantinople. And what is the answer? Well, the answer is not, we're going to invade Constantinople. It failed for the Umayyads. And who wants to send armies? Does anyone want to send armies against the fire of heaven? No. No, 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 no. The fire that lights oceans alight? No. Nobody wants to do that. But there's the problem of Constantinople. Why is the greatest city in the whole wide world Christian? And the answer the Abbasids come up with is an expensive answer. 
but it's a better answer than trying to batter your, your army against the walls of Constantinople and failing. And the answer is to build an Islamic Constantinople, Baghdad. Baghdad is the answer. The idea is that the big C, big Constantinople, was a model, not a goal. The Umayyads messed it up. The Umayyads misunderstood Allah's plan. It's a model. Now, the Arabs don't know how to build a big city. So they're going to have to learn. And they're going to have to hire people who can help teach them. But that's the learning experience, right? So it makes them a more civilized, better educated people to do this. The second thing is Constantinople is a Christian city, which means it's built for Christian stuff, which is not Islamic stuff. Now, as we see with Constantinople becoming Istanbul, you can kind of jerry-rig the Christian stuff to become Islamic stuff, but it doesn't work quite the same way. It's never really efficient because Christian stuff is built for Christian things. Islamic stuff works in a different way. I'm not saying one is better or one is worse. They're just the architecture, you know, form follows function. And both religions do things in different ways. And so they build their cities differently. So why would you want to capture Constantinople and make it Islamic? The Abbasid's answer is, we'll make an Islamic Constantinople. And that will be Baghdad. In the shadow of Babylon, in the middle of Mesopotamia, it will replace Constantinople's role on the Silk Road as the place where wholesale becomes retail. Merchants will go to will go to Baghdad to buy goods to then take home to sell on the markets. So the Silk Road, all roads kind of of the Silk Road ending Baghdad. This is where you want to be. You want to be at the terminus of the trade route because that's where wholesale becomes retail. You make the most profit there. And so Baghdad has massive wealth. The Abbasids stop expanding. You don't need the massive armies anymore. So they stop expanding. So again, that massive wealth isn't spent then on war. So that's good. Spain remains Umayyad, so you can't invade Europe. Okay? And Constantinople, if you attack Constantinople... It will equal, if it equals defeat, it equals a revolution, and hey, leave it alone. And there's no reason to go off into Central Asia or into India, to the Ganges and go to Bengal. It's too far away. It's too foreign a country. If you're going to be based in Mesopotamia. And so they need a new form of legitimacy. And what is that form going to be? culture. We are going to convert people by showing them that the Islamic world doesn't have to conquer you. It can convert you by its culture, by being the most advanced culture on earth. And for a while, it is. The Abbasids are the most advanced culture on earth. Now, there's a problem. Remember, the Arabs can't read. They don't have any cities. They don't have any universities. They don't have any of this stuff. So how can they become the most advanced culture on earth? They're going to have to borrow to absorb ideas from other people. And that's what they do. Greek philosophy, Indian math, especially the number zero, right? We, 
we write in Arabic every day in Arabic numerals. Theoretical math, arithmetic is all Arabic. Algebra, universities, the first one built in 859 in Fez in Morocco. Chemistry, optics, medicine, astronomy, poetry, all of this stuff is not Arab and is brought in to Baghdad. All of these scholars, all of this knowledge is brought in. And what it happens is it becomes Islamified. Islamic scholars use it to explain the world in Islamic ways. Just like St. Augustine used Plato to explain a Christian heaven, so will Muslim scholars use Plato to explain Islamic paradise. That's what I mean by Islamify. They will use these other things and make them into an Islamic ideal. You get the poetry of Rumi, R-U-M-I, for example. You get optics and chemistry from Persia. Medicine from the Coptics in Egypt. The university, the idea that you bring all of these scholars together in one place happens at the end of the world. It doesn't happen in Mecca. It doesn't even happen in Baghdad. It happens in Fez. It happens all the way, 4,000 miles away in Morocco. To bring knowledge. So this is important because Islam in 800 AD is the most liberal, open, advanced culture on earth. It is open to the world. It is open to new ideas. It has science. It has poetry. It is not conservative. Stuck in its ways. Afraid of the outside world. It is embracing the outside world. To be a Muslim somewhere between Fez and Afghanistan and between, say, Sicily and the Sahara is to live in 800 AD the best life on earth. So, what's the problem? This sounds great. If you've ever read something like Michael Crichton's The 13th Warrior, you get the story of Beowulf told from an Arab perspective, which is a very innovative way of doing it. The Arabs are literate. They're writing. They're studying. They're inventing coffee. Because they, one, can't drink alcohol, but also, two, they need to study. They need to study the Hadith. They need to study the Sharia. They need to study the Quran. So they have to have these late nights. They need coffee. They need a stimulant. So they're connecting to Africa for trade routes. They're on the Silk Road. But there's a problem. And what is that problem? None of the stuff they are using, none of the stuff they are bringing in is in the Quran. And remember, the Quran is a complete guide to living. None of it is Arab. And none of it is, most of it is not natively Muslim even if you Islamify it later. 
Why is that a problem? Well, how does Allah feel about you using all this non-Quran stuff? He gave Muhammad the Quran. The Quran is a complete guide to living. And now you're using Greek math. You're using Greek philosophy and Indian math. Oh, great. You invented theoretical math in algebra. That's great. But you're also taking other people's forms of poetry. What are you doing? How does Allah feel about this? And for a couple hundred years, it seems Allah's fine because civilization is great. The Abbasids are doing well. Islam is doing well. Seems Allah's pretty cool with it until the Mongols show up. In 1258, the Mongols erupt into the Middle East. Well, they erupt a little earlier, but in 1258, they lay siege to Baghdad. Remember, Baghdad is the greatest city in the whole wide world. It's at least equal, if not superior, to Constantinople. They lay siege to it and obliterate it, totally destroy it. Murder, there. the stories that they murder a million people, cut their heads off, put make three giant pyramids outside the gates of what is Baghdad. There is a another argument in some architectural historical circles that modern Baghdad is not where ancient Baghdad is, that they moved the city, that, that the Mongols so obliterated it. How is this possible? How is it that the Mongols obliterate the Muslim kingdoms in Central Asia, obliterate Abbasid Persia, and then obliterate Baghdad and keep going. How is this possible? And the answer is, it's a punishment from God, which we have seen before, right? We have seen the Byzantines use it for why they lost. We have seen the Hebrews use it for why they lost. It's a traditional, you open up your religious book, you go, what does Allah want? And the answer is, we've done something wrong. So that brings in conservatism. Not to change, to figure out what God wants and then not deviate from it. So that brings in xenophobia and isolation. Why? Because the thing that they think is the punishment from God is all of those ideas. All those non-Quran, non-Arab, non-Muslim ideas. And so you get xenophobia. We don't want outsiders coming into the Middle East. We don't want outsiders coming to the Arab world. And so trade must go around. The Silk Road begins to wither and die in the Middle East. Tamerlane comes out of Uzbekistan and Persia and just obliterates much of the rest of it. So there's that too. But that's a whole nother, that's when we get to the Mongols. The other thing is isolation. The Muslims don't want to be part of the larger world. The Arabs don't want to be part of the larger world. And so that begins a backwardness. And so the Arabs decline from history. They are replaced by the Turks, the Mughals. Even African Mali is richer than the Arabs. When Mansa Musa in the 1300s goes on Hajj, he's wealthier than the Arab kingdoms he goes through. This is a humiliation. Remember, the Arabs were God's chosen people. Certainly, they should be considered the best of Muslims. How are they not? Muhammad was an Arab. God, Allah, chose the Arabs to spread the word. And now they're poor. 
They're illiterate. They're broken. They're tribal. The Turks run their country. The Persians can invade them. Then the Europeans show up, the Christians show up, and take over. And until the 1950s, when they finally gain control over the oil revenue, do the Arabs rebound. Arabian culture falls into this isolation, this xenophobia, this conservatism. And it allows other people, creates a vacuum that other people, other peoples, even other Muslims like the Turks, to replace them. And this is seen as a humiliation. And so the word you hear in the Middle East a lot is humiliation. Whether it's Palestinians talking about their relationship with Israel or it's um, Arabs and their relationship to the Europeans or it's everyone's relationship to Americans, it's the word humiliation. That we're supposed to be great and we're not. And we're abused by these other peoples, these foreign peoples who come to our land and push us around. That it's a humiliation. That we're special. So that finishes our politics section. It's a mess because it's a mess. But we have the three different periods, the Rashidun, the four caliphs, Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and Ali, who are all directly related to Muhammad. Then we have the new dynasty of the Umayyads who make use war as their legitimacy. So the Rashidun use their connection to Muhammad as their legitimacy. The Umayyads use war as their legitimacy and ultimately failing at Constantinople, they lose their legitimacy. And then the Abbasids use culture as their legitimacy. And because of the Mongol, the defeat to the Mongols, they lose their legitimacy. And what happens to the Arabs is a decline into obscurity, into poverty. And that's where we will leave the Middle East for a while. We won't talk about the Middle East again in this class for a very long time, despite it being something we talked about in every unit up to now. In 102, we will not talk about it until the Europeans basically show up. So be safe, be careful, take care, and thank you.